Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Friday, March 30th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. That means it's Good Friday. Good Friday. I used to ask my dad, Dad, he's Catholic. Dad, what's so good about it? But what makes it Good Friday? My dad would say, oh, it's the day Jesus was nailed to the cross. I said, nailed to the cross? He said, oh, not just nailed to the cross. It's the day was marched through the streets and taunted and made to wear a crown of thorns and tormented. What? What? How in the world is that good? And he would explain, well, my boy, he never said. What it did was it allowed Jesus to rise from the dead. And with his resurrection, first of its kind, this allowed for every soul, every person ever born to ascend to heaven, if they were worthy. He died for our sins. It was the greatest achievement before or since in the history of mankind. And I would respond, okay, okay, I'm going to keep my original complaint. I lodged my complaint. What's so good about that? I'm going to change the supporting argument. What you just described is not good. That is great. He allowed every soul in purgatory since the beginning of time to ascend to heaven? That's great! You know, Catholics tend to downplay some of the greatness that's going on around them. Think of the last two days. Holy Thursday and Good Friday. Holy Thursday seems a lot more important than Good Friday. It's not. And this brings me to another word in Catholicism that will be in the news this weekend. If you're watching the Final Four, you will find out about Loyola of Chicago's nun. I always thought nun was such a sad title for such an important person. You really want to fill a person with pride? Call her a nun. How many brides of Christ do you want on hand to worship with you and offer you solace? None. I'll have none. Just give me a nun. Sister Jean, her support of Loyola Chicago is the transcendent story of this billion-dollar TV enterprise. And what category do we put Sister Jean in? None. They're just none. For all the grandeur and opulence of the Catholic Church, when it comes to some of their words, they don't sell it as much as they can. Am I right? I mean, is it like I'm speaking the Holy Word of God through the Vicar of Christ on Earth? Or am I just pontificating? On the show today... I've given my spiel to Pierre. Let's see what he does with it, FYI. But first, she is a comedian and a promulgator of the PowerPoint, the clever and oh-so-clickbaity Aparna Nanchurla. Aparna Nanchurla is a comic. She's an actress. She's a little bit of a depressive. I'm, maybe that's going too far. She's got some gloom, but she turns it into sunshine in her latest Netflix special, which is part of the uh, stand-ups season two. She's also director of HR in the really dark Netflix comedy, Corporate. Hey, Aparna, how are you? Good. So I have been watching your stand-up for a long time, and it seems, tell me if this is right, yeah. there are lots of aspects to it. I want to talk about punning in a second. Sure. You, you do PowerPoint presentations, at least in this special. But the scaffolding, the main part of what you do, and mm-hmm. then there are other ancillary things, is just you as a person, as a woman, 
in the world, you walking through the world, experiencing things, and then, you know, perhaps other things are layered on top of that. But that's the spine of your comic persona. Yeah, I would say, and I mean, this probably describes most comedians, but it's a very inside-out filter where it's like, start with the brain and then try to translate it to others. Yes. Yeah. But a lot of comedians, right, their comedy relies in storytelling ability. And sure. their personality will come through. Right. But I think yours is a little different. Yeah. I think it's forefronting the personality. Yeah. Yeah. Personality overrated. <laughs> no, it's, a, well, maybe what we call personality. Right, right, yeah. right. The idea of what we think of when we're like, oh, an entertainer. Right. Yeah. The personality from the song whose lyrics are personality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That kind of personality. Yes. Yeah. I think that's also funny that as a society, we always think of when we say personality, we mean like outgoing and extroverted. There are so many words like that that are on a continuum Mm -hmm. that we always emphasize the good part, like luck. Yes. Luck could be good luck or bad luck. and But we always think it's good. Hey, luck. I wish you luck. Yeah. Well, no one says which kind. It could go either that's way. That's right. Yeah. And I wish this were true, so I'll pretend it was. You know, in China, that's not the case. I mean, I'm sure there are other societies that have those words. And yeah. They don't always default to the positive. Right, because fortune sounds better, but it's still, ran- it's basically saying, like, I wish you random chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, as we know, that all the outcomes. <laughs> oh, boy. Every possible outcome. Right. Good luck. He got hit by a girder. That's on the continuum. That's his luck. I didn't say yeah. anything. Yeah. Right. In terms of uh, your development, as you, you know, look back when you were an early comic to now, was it always that? Did you always, well, I don't know, always. Your first two times on stage, you probably had a bunch of jokes as opposed to here's who I am. Right. But is the personality been being pushed forth more? Yeah. I think I've always had trouble kind of trying to be anything but what I am. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first started doing stand-up, another comedian said to me, and they meant it as a compliment, even though it sounds like it could be the other thing, but he he was like, you do stand-up like someone who's never seen stand-up before, (laughs) in that I think I didn't have a lot of exposure to comedy, so I was just doing my idea of what I thought you do on stage, which wasn't a typical take on it, I guess. How did you know what was funny? I think I... A very small focus groups of in high school, I think I ran cross country and track and I would sort of make sardonic one liners on our long runs and get a favorable enough response that I was like, maybe I can test this in front of a larger sample size. And were you like, well, this joke works about two miles in? Yeah. 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 That (laughs) taught me about placement and timing (laughs) for sure. So your cross country teammates thought you were funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, it was because I was an introverted kid growing up. So, you know, being funny is very much about response. So I didn't know in the larger sense that I was until I sort of had an ability to test it in front of other people. But I also, my mom was like very afraid of how unassertive I was. Uh Like she thought the world would sort of overpower me. So she always would like, like she made my sister and I take public speaking classes. And so... I felt like I was weirdly more comfortable public speaking than, like, making small talk. Okay, so this is what I wanted to ask you. I enjoy puns and wordplay. Oh, you do? Okay. I do. I don't know. When you brought up punning, I wasn't sure if it could, again, like, luck go either way. <laughs> I, fr- I freaking love punning. Oh, good. It seems to me that you're attracted to it, too. I do. I think I just enjoy words in general, So, and punning to me just feels like appreciating playing with words. I agree. Yeah. There is, I don't want to give away, but this doesn't give away a punchline, but there is a a bit in your special which 
much of it rests on, I think it, it builds to a pun. Oh. With, do, you, do you know which I'm talking about? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. And to me, just if you look at comedy like math, and some people do, like that's the right joke to make, that Mm -hmm. bit of wordplay. I feel the audience (laughs) groans a little bit. Why? But it's such – that is the right joke. That is – The perfect sentence to say at that point. And the audience, on the one hand, I think, reacts to it like, okay, that's the joke. But on the other hand, we feel we have to groan. I wonder if you have any relationship with puns where you back off them if you're not getting the right reaction. Oh, I always always resent that people groan at puns because to me it feels like, oh, you made me have to think about (laughs) a word having more than one meaning. And now I, you know, don't like you for it. But that to me feels very anti-intellectual. It's almost like people think better comedy is when you don't have to think. Right. Where the laugh is almost like just reflexive. And I think with puns, people are always like, oh, I saw how you got there and now I'm upset. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's it sort of takes away the magic. Maybe right. the mathematical portion of it, mm-hmm. if the if the audience can essentially do the proof retroactively, it makes it seem less like math. Yeah, like I think if it was a more instinctual laugh, I think they automatically are like, I'm in school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you like them. You're not going to back I love it. I'm pro-thinking, and I know that's a controversial stand. Well, I think, I think that if you look at puns, if the kind of framework you're – putting on it is, well, all I'm doing is making you think, and therefore I stand by it. Right. Then you're going to stick to it. But there's like some other framework where you could say, I don't know, there's a number of other things and a number of other reasons why other comedians wouldn't use the pun. And it's not only placating the audience. And there's an argument against the pun too, which I don't don't subscribe to, but I don't think it's necessarily a lowbrow argument to be against the pun. Yeah, that's true. And I I do think there are there's an extreme of punning where it gets a little self-indulgent mm-hmm. where it's like clearly they're not enjoying it and you're just liking the whole getting deeper. But um <laughs> but yeah, I think in a broad sense I am pro pun. Now on the Netflix special, mm-hmm. you pull out the PowerPoint presentation. Yes. What was your relationship? And you're also on this uh, new show, Corporate. So there is an overlap there, the PowerPoint and the corporation. Oh, yeah. Did you ever work in a corporation and have to use PowerPoint? I have worked in a corporation. I have tempted for a corporation, but I have never actually done a PowerPoint at my job. Yeah, I I saw it more as like a, a comedy tool that. I don't know, like when I was starting, I would see someone like Eugene Merman kind of doing more experimental ways of presenting comedy. So I think I kind of gravitated towards that and like breaking the form and and just doing something different. And I was hosting a show for a while here in New York. And every week, you know, I would feel like I would have to present something different because there would be returning audience members. So I ended up just defaulting to making PowerPoints a lot. When you do your PowerPoint presentations, so you're saying you were just an amateur PowerPointer. You learned to put together PowerPoints for fun. Yes, but I did grow up. My mom is a doctor, and she would give a lot of lectures for work, and she made me sit through a lot of Uh very dry PowerPoints. And uh, you would give her tips? She would want feedback, but I I don't know that we were the best core audience. What kind of doctor was she? Endocrinologist. Okay, so yeah. she would be talking about enzymes or something. Enzymes, a lot of diabetes, mm-hmm. thyroid gland. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like the word 
peptic acid might yes, come up. yeah. And then you had to punch it up. Right. You were asked to— <laughs> Yeah, uh, we were brought in for punch-up. So, corporate, you're an actress on that show. Do you have mm-hmm. any uh, hand in the crafting, writing of the show? I have a hand in that I can be like, I think my character Grace might say something like this, yeah. but not beyond that. It is a pretty tightly scripted show, I think, just in that it's, uh, you know, a satire and trying to hit at certain uh, institutions that we exist among. I would say that that show is kind of interesting as far as you because on most shows or most places I've seen you, you play a certain role. Sure. But on corporate, everyone else around, you're you're perky compared to everyone else, I think. Oh, I know. (laughs) It's kind of funny that I'm like the most positive character on yeah. a... Well, you seem least bothered by the fact that this is a, a oh, soul-crushing right. world in existence, I would say. Yes. I think I've seen my character described as the one person who's not completely dead in the eyes. Right. Yeah. So if we took the show The Office and took the optimism, and let's say that's an optimism level eight, and dial it down to about a negative two, yep. that's what we'd get with corporate. Yes. Yeah. It's very dark, and it's, I think, a new... Level of dark for Comedy Central. It's so dark because I have to respect the comedy, and I've laughed at times. Like, there was this milk bit that just kept on going oh, in yes. the episode where you were hosting the party. But I don't know if a show can succeed. and can, You don't have to get widespread, broad appeal, but you got to get enough appeal mm-hmm. that people will come back. With characters who clearly every character hates life so much. Right. And the idea of comedy, especially when it was only the networks and, on, and sitcoms, was an escape also— a happy place where advertisers would like to put their product in between these, you know, generally good-feeling bits. And corporate is not that at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's very much an attack against, you know, hard, light, bubbly comedies. And I think the— Guys who wrote it said themselves, like, they every workplace comedy they saw tried to sort of paint this shiny gloss over what a workplace is and right. how it's, like, funny bits and silly coworkers. And it's, like, the reality is that a lot of us have a very tortured relationship with work, and they kind of wanted to— Dig, or, dig into that. Yeah, and yeah. the good thing about the media now is you don't have to appeal to everyone. You just have to have that resonant appeal for a niche, and I think maybe corporate could get that. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, critics like it, but, you know, critics but are— they're, they're a depressive lot. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, that's probably why. <laughs> Aparna Nanchurla's new comedy special is a part of the stand-up season two on Netflix. She stars in Corporate. Thank you, Aparna. Thank you. And now the spiel. We live, dear listener, in a world of acronyms. Yesterday, the UK was exactly one year away from leaving the EU. Here in the US, ABC broke the story that the head of the EPA's bodyguards broke down the door to his condo in DC, thinking he needed rescuing. Turned out he was A-OK. And last week, the AP reported that the MLB is adding some new letters to go along with ERA, OPS, and WAR, MVs, mound visits. From sports to government to small businesses to big corporations to major products that dominate our lives to tiny ones most of us will never know about, letters just stand for stuff. Three-letter shorthand seems especially ubiquitous, the two-letter mound visits notwithstanding. So I'm wondering, how many three-letter combinations are there in English anyway? 
The math is straightforward. 26 letters times 26 letters times 26 letters gets us to 17,576 possible combinations. But how many of them actually mean something? How many are used up by a sports stat or a business, a concept, a thing? I came up with a few combinations and checked. EJM. Yep, it's a thing. Executive Jet Management, a company I'll probably never be a customer of. TNP, that's the Terrain Navigator Pro, of course. You'll need it if you can't afford the services of EJM. How about repeated clusters like CCC? That's multiple things just within New York City. There's the Christian Cultural Center and the Citizens Committee for Children of New York. So actually, what I did was I called the two CCCs, and while the phones were ringing, I put them in a conference call with each other. Here's how that went. Okay, sir, you're a Lebowski, I'm a Lebowski. That's terrific. I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. No, dude, we are very much into the whole brevity thing. What about some weird high Scrabble value cluster of letters, like, I don't know, XXT? That can't be a thing, right? It is? It is. It's a thing. Or more specifically, according to Billboard, not a thing, but a mystery dance trio. The music video that goes with that estimation pushes a cultish product, the Lifetime Management System. They don't call it an LMS for short, but I'm gonna. Personally, I could use a Lifetime Management System right now. There's more news coming at us faster than ever, and that was true before President Trump. He basically supercharged that cliché. Because of the clownish leadership in the highest office in the land, being passably aware of current events means learning about some of the granular functions and organs of government. If there's one thing that thrives in the swamp, it is acronyms. Did you hear that former UN Ambassador John Bolton will replace HR in the role of NSA? No, not National Security Agency. One person can't be an agency. The attrition's not that bad. I mean National Security Advisor. Better hope he doesn't convince DJT to scrap the JCPOA. Beyond government, we've got endless reboots, email newsletters, think pieces assessing the over- or underratedness of RBG and DFW. Which of those think pieces makes it into your Google search depends on their SEO. We are constantly pushed to watch more crap, read more shit, and do more stuff. BTW. I'm aware that all of these aren't actually acronyms. They're initialisms. The letters and acronyms have to go together into something you can pronounce— POTUS fits the bill. DOJ does not, especially not under Jeff Sessions. He doesn't even know what Doge smells like. But the word acronym has kind of gone the way of the babushka doll. If you use a word incorrectly enough times, it becomes right. No one says matryoshka doll, aside from the moles in the FBI. Anyway, we're trying to answer a question here. How many of the more than 17,000 three-letter combinations actually represent something? I talked to Oliver Rader, a senior writer at 538, where they love to crunch numbers. You could say that Oliver enjoys FTE at FTE. That's full-time employment at 538. He edits the site's Riddler column, which asks questions that actually have answers. But this question doesn't really have one. But I think those are the, uh, the more interesting questions, aren't they? Right, right. But here we are anyway. Okay, cool, cool. So <laughs> what resources would you go about using to answer this question we have about these 17,000-plus combinations of three letters? Well, so I, I used to play competitive Scrabble, uh, and I still dabble in Scrabble. So I, as a start, I checked how many three-letter words were valid in American English-language Scrabble, 
and there are 1,081, which hmm. if my math is right, that's about 6% of all of those 17,000 possible combinations. So immediately we kind of can account for a lot of them, right? If 6% of them are real words, imagine how many of them must be real acronyms. Right. If it's common enough to be a three-letter word, like a full word, it's also probably an acronym somewhere. You could look at Wikipedia page titles. You could look at Google hits. I think there's a lot of ways that you could round up a whole lot of three-letter acronyms. I'm curious if you have found any that, that you don't think have, have an acronym associated with them. You know, I'm on Google right now. If I type in QJX, I don't get anything, for instance. And that, of course, is, you know, as far as Scrabble goes, that is the money letters. Yeah, I'm seeing there's a YouTube user by the name of QJX, but <laughs> that's about it. What about calculating this? The statistical chance that a random three-letter combination, so, you know, randomly picked one out of 17,000 of these things, does stand for something that's claimed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, depending, if you're just picking the three letters completely randomly, then, yeah, I guess that's right. Just the fraction of uh, however much of that universe you filled up. So there we have it. This is me again, without Oliver in the mix. I was actually onto something there. And by something, I mean the premise for a somewhat scientific gist-vestigation. If I generate 100 random three-letter combinations... I can then use some unscientific judgment to determine how many of them count as standing for something and how many don't. And if I apply that percentage to our very scientific number of three-letter combinations in the English language, 17,576, I should have our answer of how many three-letter combinations actually mean something. At least, you know, according to Google. So we ran some numbers and found some weird stuff. From the Irish Yoga Association to Kentucky Sports Radio ventricular septal defect to virological quality control. The Q in DGQ could stand for either quartet or quintet, depending on how busy you like your music to sound. I recommend the quintet. David Grisman is awesome. And NIR could mean Northern Ireland Railways, just as well as non-ionizing radiation. And the figure we got to was right around 80%. 80 of the 100 randomly generated three-letter combinations had some meaning tied to them, whether they were spoken on some suburban street corner or lost in the footnotes of a scientific study that would years later be debunked. In the past few weeks on this show, your usual host, Mike Pesca, has said the world is getting more and more complex. And it is, if you count the sheer number of human endeavors, industries, dynamics, the generation of culture. There are as many atoms in the universe as there were a thousand years ago. In fact, there are fewer. It's a different topic. But... There are a hell of a lot more objects and a hell of a lot more people combining them in a hell of a lot more ways. And we're talking and reading about it all more than we ever did. One of my favorite corners of the internet, the BBC's news magazine, writes that a moderately industrious undergraduate pursuing a degree in the humanities at the beginning of the 21st century might run through 800 books before graduation day. By comparison, a wealthy English family in 1250 would have counted itself fortunate to have three books in its possession. Right. Back in 1250, do you think anyone was saying it's all been done before? And all of this stuff generates a flood of acronyms. Look no further than Wikipedia's lists under the words can refer to anytime you enter three-letter combinations into it, or the mountain of three-letter initialisms born in the age of online chats and registered in the Urban Dictionary. So, how many three-letter acronyms are there in the English language? 80% of 17,576 gives us... 14,060.8. There's our answer. 
And when you think of how much complexity that number suggests, you almost think it makes sense for the most powerful guy in the world to take his daily intelligence reports in the form of a picture book. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. He was once a member of the mystery dance trio XXT until they fell out over a game of combined PRX and Scrabble. Daniel Schrader helped produce the show. He's lived in NYC for two years. He still needs his TNP to make it to the BQE. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, joined the CCC, of course, the Christian Cultural Center, but all she got was a lousy T-shirt asking WWJD. Just executive producer Steve Lichtai is away this week, but will return soon aboard an airplane provided by EJM. The gist. You know we like to say UPDPDP, which of course is Oomperu Depperu Dupru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>